So not that we need Adam Sandler to remind us of this, as he does in that cinema classic, Anger Management. But anger can get us into trouble. Violent actions usually start with angry words, which usually start with angry thoughts. Next thing you know, we're choking Jack Nicholson and being tried for attempted murder, which I think is a bit of an excessive charge, but you know, suspension of disbelief. We all know this though. We all know where anger can lead us. I mean, some of our biggest regrets in life were things we did or things we said in anger. Uh, it was anger that made us yell at our kids or coworker. It was anger that made us slam the door or punch the cabinets. It was anger that made us fire off that email or that text that we just really wish we could get back. And, and it wasn't the righteous anger, right? It wasn't the righteous anger that we can sometimes get away with. No, it was the unrighteous type. It was the uncontrolled rage that comes more from pride and selfishness. That's the kind of anger that gets us into trouble. That's the kind of anger that ruins relationships. That's the kind of anger that can even ruin us. You probably know this, but anger can have a, a very deleterious effect on our physical and mental well-being. I mean, in their book, Anger Kills, uh, Redford and Virginia Williams uh, make the observation that 20% of Americans have levels of hostility in their lives that are actually dangerous to their health. According to the authors, prolonged bouts of anger can cause hypertension, exhaustion, even heart disease. Anger can cause heart attacks. Anger kills in all kinds of ways. Anger can kill relationships. Anger can kill people. Anger can kill our health. But it's worse than that. Anger can be such a problem in our lives that Jesus says it can even kill our souls. According to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, anger might not just land you in court. Anger might just land you in hell. That's what he says. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount. We're studying the sermon here at Rooftop in our series called Religion Redefined. Uh, the series, or the sermon rather, uh, is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, and the sermon is Jesus' big manifesto in which he sort of lays out God's radical expectations of his people. As we've already learned, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not for easy listening. It's not for casual Christians. It is for people who want to leave the crowd and take the radical steps required to become Jesus' authentic followers. Now, last week, we started in on what is the largest section of the sermon and, and where the name of this series even comes from, Religion Redefined. So in this section of the sermon, Jesus, who was a Jew, sort of redefines what it means uh, to obey the Jewish law. As we talked about, Jews were people of the law. They were very proud of the laws that God had given them. Jesus was very careful to say in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to get rid of the law. Rather, he came to what? He came to fulfill the law. And part of fulfilling the law involves revealing what the law really said and what it really means to obey the law. You see, over many centuries, certain people had misinterpreted the law to make it easy to obey. In Jesus' day, these people were called the whom? They were called the Pharisees. And in this section of the sermon, Jesus challenges this Pharisaic interpretation of the law, and he clarifies what the law was intended to reveal about God and how it was intended to be obeyed. In this section, then, Jesus redefines what it means to obey six different sections of Jewish law. Let's just go ahead and jump into the first one. 
and talk about it, and you'll see what I mean. So let me go ahead and share with you Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and that anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, we'll talk about that. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But I tell you that anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fires of hell. So, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there, remember, that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. And I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now here in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, we see the pattern for what we're going to see in the next five sections of the sermon. We see here three different parts to what Jesus is saying. First, Jesus quotes the existing law. The existing law as it was misinterpreted by the Pharisees. So this is what the people had heard. This is how they had been taught to obey the law. What is the existing law in this instance? Well, it's simple. You have heard that it was said of the people long ago, do not murder, and that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That was the existing law. Don't murder, or you're going to be judged. And indeed, the ancient Jewish law said that. In fact, it was one of the five, or one of the, one of the five commandments. That would have been easier. One of the ten commandments It was number five. Do not murder. That was the commandment that they had been misinterpreting. Now, you might be wondering, how does one misinterpret the command not to murder? <laughs> that seems pretty simple. Don't murder someone, and then you're going to be judged. How had the Pharisees been misinterpreting the command not to murder or face judgment? Well, here's what was happening. You see, the Pharisees were very concerned about maintaining what they called righteousness. Righteousness is, to reduce this, rightness before God. They defined rightness, righteousness before God, as quite simply keeping the law. So all you got to really do here, at least with respect to this commandment, all you really got to do here is keep the law. And to be right before God, all you really got to do is what? Not murder people. That's it. All you really got to do to be right before God is to not murder anybody. You can stand with a clear conscience before God because you can say, God, at least with respect to the fifth commandment, didn't murder anybody. We're good, right? We think that's ridiculous. But we also think that. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've had this conversation with people. Uh, when I'm talking to them about God or Jesus or religion or just life, you know, for whatever reason, it just comes up in the conversation. They feel the need to say this. They say, well, you know, I'm a good person. I haven't, like, killed anybody. That's what they say. I'm a good person. I haven't, like, killed anybody. 
And I'm like, since when did the standard for being a good person mean not killing people? Since when did not killing anybody make us righteous before God? But this is what we do. This is what we all do. We all interpret laws and rules in a way that allows us to think we're keeping them. Basically, we lower the bar on whatever rules or commands we think God is giving us. We lower the bar in such a a low way that we can, like, clear it easily. (laughs) Oh, that was easy. I'm righteous before God. We're like kids who are looking for loopholes in laws, right? You know, our mom says, our mom's walking out the door, says, don't watch any TV. Don't turn on the TV while I'm gone. We're like, okay. And if you don't watch any TV while I'm gone, you'll get dessert. Like, okay. So mom goes away. We're like, okay, don't turn the TV on. What's everybody do? Get out your phones. Watch some Netflix. The mom comes back to turn the TV on. No, we didn't turn the TV on. You get dessert. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were interpreting the law in such a low way that allowed them to jump over it and declare themselves righteous so that they could get dessert. But this was a misinterpretation of the do not murder command. The do not murder command was about so much more than not murdering people. And this is what Jesus says next. So following the existing law, we get Jesus' radical reinterpretation of the law based on God's original intent. So that's what Jesus does next. He radically reinterprets the law according to what God originally intended in giving the law in the first place. So with respect to murder, what does Jesus say? Well, let's go on. Verse 22. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So maybe you see what Jesus is doing here. The the Pharisees had interpreted the fifth commandment not to murder in a very wooden, a very literalistic way. Do not murder and you're good. They had lowered the bar. But what does Jesus do here? What does Jesus do to the bar? He raises, not, he doesn't just raise it. He like shoves it up their noses. It's not murder that's a problem. It's not murder that might get you into hell. Like, it's, it's, it's anger. Don't be angry or you will be judged. And this isn't just true of anger, Jesus says. It's true of insults. Jesus actually quotes another law, another rule. It says if you call someone a raka, raka was like an Aramaic insult that, back then. It basically meant like empty-headed. If you call someone a raka, you will be answerable to the Sanhedrin. Apparently that was a rule back then. Sanhedrin is like the Jewish court. Jesus says, yeah, you've heard that too. If you call someone raka, raka, empty-headed person, it's an insult, and you have to go face the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. Jesus said, no, that's, the, that's, the, the, that's not the thing you're going to have to worry about. You call someone raka. In fact, you call someone a fool, you're going to answer to God. Jesus says that getting in trouble with the court for insulting someone pales in comparison to what God will do to you for your words. Calling someone names like Raka won't just get you into legal trouble, it will get you into spiritual trouble with God, you will be in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus raises the bar really, really, really high. The problem isn't murder, the problem is anger. The problem is name calling. Now, question. Why are these problems? I mean, why why is anger a problem? Because it's bad for your heart? You get heart disease? Why is calling someone Raka a problem? Because it's rude? Well, it is, and it will. But let's dig deeper. 
Why does Jesus say these are problems? These are problems because they are violations of God's original intent in the law. You see, why is it, why is it wrong? Let's get back to the law here. Why is it wrong not to murder someone? It's wrong not to murder someone. It's wrong to murder someone because people are created in the image of God. They're like God's people. We don't have the right to take God's gift of life away from them. Nor do we have the right to insult them. By insulting them, we are insulting the creator who made them. In fact, just the opposite. We were made, made to live at peace with other people. The opposite of murder is to give life and, uh, 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 and peace to the people that God created us to live in relationship with. That's God's vision for human relationships, and it's embedded in the law. The problem with anger and name-calling is that it moves us away from how God created us to live in, peace, in peaceful relationships with our brothers and sisters. That's why murder is wrong. That's why anger is wrong. That's why name-calling can be wrong, too, because it moves us away from God's original design for us. Now, before we go too much further, we've got to start adding in some nuance. Question here. Is it is anger sin? What Jesus seems to say suggests as much. He says, anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. So is being angry sinful? Jesus seems to imply that it is. But if being angry is sinful, we have a little bit of a problem because Jesus is being a hypocrite. <laughs> As anybody knows the life of Jesus, knows that Jesus got angry plenty of times. And there was this one time he got so angry, what did he do? He walked in the temple, what did he do? He like flipped tables. He like picked up a whip and like started chasing people around. Jesus had some anger issues. In fact, not only did Jesus occasionally get angry, what else did he do that might be in contradiction to what he teaches us to do? He called people names. He didn't just didn't call people names. He called people fools. He called the Pharisees fools. And then he tells us, hey, don't call people fools. Don't be angry. You might go to hell. Jesus, come on. You going to hell? So what gives here? Well, there is such a thing as righteous anger. We've got to nuance this. Anger can be a legitimate, God-given emotion that we are sometimes called to express. I mean, when people do wrong things, sometimes it should make us angry, Right? Racism should make us angry. School shootings should make us angry. Abuse in the church should make us angry. Jesus is condemning something else. He's condemning unrighteous anger, which, if we're honest with ourselves, is like what we experience about 95% of the time. Like only 5% of our anger is really righteous. Another thing that we need to remember while reading the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus likes to use this thing, this thing that you might have heard before. It's called hyperbole. Anybody ever heard the word hyperbole before? Hyperbole is this. Hyperbole is an intentional and an obvious exaggeration to make a point more memorably. And Jesus likes to do this. He likes to overstate things in memorable ways that confront us. I mean, if Jesus, here's how this could have gone. If Jesus had gotten up and said, you know, depending on the source and the extent of your anger and what exactly caused you to be angry and how you chose to express it, you, you might suffer eternal consequences, but it will depend on the circumstances. You know, if Jesus said that, 
Nobody would think twice about it. Nobody would memorize it. Nobody would preach it. We would remain unconfronted. Knowing that, Jesus hyperbolizes. He says, angry people are in danger of hell. And we're like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm an angry person. Am I in danger of hell? You see, Jesus wants to shock us into self-reflection. I learned this a long time ago, and it really helped help me understand Jesus and his method of teaching and even the Gospels themselves. I, I learned this, that Jesus teaches not for information, but Jesus teaches for transformation. That's his goal here. His goal is not necessarily to impart all the things you need to know. Jesus teaches in a way that gives us the chance to be transformed. He says things in ways that might be startling and confusing, but they do have the power to change us if we let his words get inside of us. The starkness of Jesus' warning here can be upsetting. It might raise questions, but that's his point. He wants to startle us into reflecting on the seriousness of our problem. He wants to force us to decide if we want to do anything about the anger that might be killing us and our relationships and our world. What do we want to do? Which brings us to the third part of the passage. After Jesus quotes the existing law, with the Pharisees' misinterpretation, and then offers his radical reinterpretation of the law based on God's original intent. He then offers some illustrations and instructions. Some illustrations and instructions on keeping the law consistent with God's intent. So if we're really concerned about building peaceful relationships with others, which is God's intent, here's what we should do. And he gives us two illustrations with two instructions that I want to share with you before we uh, close with some worship. First, first illustration, first bit of instruction. In Matthew 5.23, he says this, Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. First, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So in this first illustration, Jesus says that if we are offering a sacrifice and that remember that someone is mad at us, we need to stop with the offering, go be reconciled, go try to work it out, and then come back and finish with the sacrifice. Now, there is probably some hyperbole going on here, too. Uh, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience that literally offered sacrifices, animals, bulls, birds, grains, and he's describing a somewhat amusing situation here. I mean, Jesus is speaking in, in Galilee, which is quite a ways away from Jerusalem, which is where the temple is, which is where they would make their offerings. So here's what he tells them to do. He tells his, his listeners in Galilee, you know, if, if you are down in Jerusalem, let's say you're down in Jerusalem at one of the feasts, and there you're waiting in line, and you've got, like, build your bowl there, ready to make this offering, and you're, like, at the altar. You're, like, there. You're, like, the gate, the altar. You're right there. You're, like, oh, my gosh, wait a second. Shmuel is upset with me. Well, what do you do? I mean, you're there. There's a long line. The priest is like, okay, your turn. You got to tie, butch the bull, build the bull. What do I call him? Butch, build the bull. The bull. You got to tie the bull up. And then you got to leave the temple. Excuse me, excuse me. I'll be right back. Excuse me, excuse me. And then, you know, your camel's there. You got to get on the camel. You got, you know, the three, five-day journey to Galilee. You got to go find, hey, where's Shmuel? Where's Shmuel? You got Shmuel. I think we got some things to work out. And we good. And then you get back on your camel. And then you go back. 
three to five days, all the Jerusalem and the temple. And like, okay, I got my bulls up there. I'm back here. Uh, bull, are you still alive? <laughs> you are? Okay, good. Not for long. <laughs> That's what he's describing. Is he serious? Probably this is a bit of a hyperbole. It's an amusing situation. Certainly for us, you know, thankfully we don't sacrifice bulls anymore. But there is a point here. He's teaching us a lesson. What's the lesson? The lesson is that we need to reprioritize reconciliation in radical ways. You see, we cannot claim to worship God. We cannot claim to worship, make a sacrifice without making radical attempts to be reconciled to the people that we're at odds with. This is Jesus' point. God cares about this. Worship requires it. You see, our God, maybe you didn't know this, our God is a relational God. We don't just worship one God. We worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are at perfect peace with each other. Togetherness, unity, peace, it's the very essence of God. Peaceful, loving, unified relationship is part of God's very being. So to worship God authentically means we have to pursue peace with each other to a radical degree, to the point that we might have to tie up our bow and travel hundreds of miles to go worship, work out a conflict. It's that important to God. Why is it that important to God? Because it's who he is. It's who he is. Now, to be sure, uh, there is no guarantee, let's get practical and let's keep it real here. There is, there is no guarantee that peace can be had. Healthy marriage requires two willing partners. If you don't have two willing partners, don't have a healthy marriage. Just so, reconciliation between two people requires two willing parties. Just, that's just the reality. But we do have to do our part. Paul says in the book of Romans, he says this, if it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We cannot claim to be Christians who worship the triune God without going as far as we can to live at peace with others. In fact, I, I, think, of, I think about this verse a lot. You should too. You see, I would hazard to guess that right now most of us in this room are living in conflict with someone. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's an old friend, maybe it's an, a, ch a child. There is a very high chance that there is somebody in the world right now who hates you, or at least has very mixed feelings about you. Now, who knows what the cause of those feelings are? Who knows how long they've lasted? Who knows if really it has any hope of being repaired? Who knows? Only God. Also, who knows how hard you've tried to work it out? Maybe you've done everything. Maybe you've tried calling. Maybe you've confessed your sin. Maybe you've said your peace. Maybe you've forgiven them their sins. Maybe you've tried. But here's the question, and here's the question that I think Jesus just wants to keep pressing on us as long as we're here on earth. Have you gone as far as it depends on you? Have you gone as far as it depends on you? Maybe you have. Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Can you go further? Can you try calling instead of sending a cheap little text? Can you try apologizing better this time? Can you talk to a wise friend to get some coaching? Can you go further? That's what Paul says. As far as it depends on you. Can you go further? Now, maybe not. Honestly, some relationships are beyond repair. Paul acknowledges this too. He says, if it is possible. That's what he said. If it is possible. Sometimes it's just not. Jesus knows that. 
Also, I should say that it's possible to live at peace with others and be okay in never seeing them again. <laughs> That's a possibility too. A reconciliation does not require friendship. But what Jesus wants to at least get in our brains is that we cannot worship a relational God without prioritizing, reprioritizing relational peace. Worshiping God doesn't just mean singing songs or dropping a check in the offering. It means pursuing unity and forgiveness and reconciliation with brothers and sisters. And it means taking radical actions, radical actions like tying up a bull at the altar to pursue peace, reprioritize reconciliation. That's the first set of instructions. Let me share with you the second um, before we close in worship. In verse 25, he continues. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still with them on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. Judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. There isn't much hyperbole here. If anything, it's a metaphor. Uh, prison, what's prison? Probably hell. Um, what Jesus is illustrating, though, is what he's already said, that anger in relationships leads to undesirable consequences. If we upset someone, they may sue us. The judge may take their side, hand us over to the officer, throw us in prison. We just won't get out until we've paid everything back. There's consequences to our anger. Now, probably most of us do not have anger problems that get us into legal trouble, like Adam Sandler. But Jesus isn't offering legal advice here. He's giving us another lesson. What's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Settle matters quickly. That's what he says. Settle matters quickly while you are still with them on the way. Why? Because you might run out of time. Instead of talking to that person about it, you might have to talk to God about it. I know that sometimes you need to take time to work conflict out. I mean, reconciliation can take a while. You know, time heals all wounds, etc. But don't take too much time. Why not? Because you might meet the judge. And Jesus is saying, you really don't want to meet the judge if you haven't gone as far as it depends on you to live at peace with your brother and sister. <clears throat> Years ago, I uh, saw a movie, which I thought about this week because I was prepping. The movie's called The Straight Story, and it's based on a true story. Uh, it's one of these uh, quiet, understated films that like, critics loved and people didn't go to see. Uh, but it's a true story, and um, it's about this guy named Alvin Strait. So Alvin Strait, he's this old man living in Iowa whose health is failing him. He uses two canes to get around, and he can't see because his vision's really bad, so he can't drive. And his brother, Lyle, lives in Wisconsin. So he lives in Iowa, and his brother lives in Lyle, and he gets a phone call. Alvin gets a phone call that, from Lyle's daughter that Lyle had a stroke, isn't doing so great. So Alvin and Lyle actually had a fallen out uh, many years ago. Alvin realizes that time is running out, like tick, 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 tick. Time is running out to go patch things up with his brother, so he decides to go visit him. But because of his vision problems, he can't drive, doesn't know a lot of people, doesn't have anybody to drive him. So Alvin, here's what he does. He repairs his lawnmower and drives the 240 miles on farm roads to Wisconsin on his lawnmower. True story. True story. He has to avoid tractor trailers. He has to eat roadkill. 
He has to camp by the side of the road. He has to repair his lawnmower on the way. He has to ride across narrow bridges in order to go see his brother. But he does. He makes it to Wisconsin before he dies, goes to see his brother, and they have a conversation, and they work it out. How far are you willing to go to patch things up before you die? Willing to leave your bull at the altar? Willing to get on your tractor? Drive 240 miles? How far are you willing to go to reconcile with your brother, with your sister? Because that's who they are. Jesus' language here is, is very intentional. These people that he's talking about, reconciling, they're not strangers. These are brothers or sisters. That's what he says. That's what he says. Brothers or sisters. Next slide, please. Next slide. Come on. There we go. <laughs> go and be reconciled to your whom? To your the strange person? Go and be reconciled to your brother, to your sister. These are not strangers. These are siblings, especially if they're fellow Christians. God's family members should make every effort to get along. And before we die, we're going to have to work it out in heaven. Might as well work it out here on earth. Uh, speaking of brothers, I remember, uh, I'll leave you with this. I remember an argument that I was having with uh, one of my brothers years ago. I have two younger brothers and an older sister, and we're all followers of Jesus. But even, even with that, we get into little sibling spats, you know, sibling spats. And, and my brother and I got into one, and it happened on vacation many years ago in the Ozarks. A conflict on vacation, always lovely. The incident happened, though, it happened early in the week, and it just, it just made the week cold. And we tried avoiding it for a day or two, but I just, I knew it just needed to sort it out. Uh, I knew that it was probably going to, I got to take the initiative here. I could feel the Holy Spirit like sort it out, sort it out, sort it out, sort it out. But I just, I just, I couldn't pull the trigger. I just don't know why I couldn't pull the trigger. I've, over the years as a pastor, I've gone pretty good at confronting conflict. I mean, you just, you just have to. But, but family conflict's different. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so I kept, it, the spirit was just there, sort it out, sort it out, sort it out, but I, I just didn't. Uh, finally, towards the end of the week, I could tell God was like forcing the issue. I was golfing with my brother and with uh, my, my cousins, and we went to the golf course, and we were all kind of getting our carts ready, and there was like one cart left. It was just my brother and I. I'm like, okay, I guess we're in the same cart. So we get in the same cart, and I'm driving, and I knew it was like just cold and golf cart, and I knew that, like, okay, this is, this is when it has to happen. But I just couldn't pull the trigger, and we just kept playing holes and holes, and then halfway through the back nine, it just hadn't happened, and, and God's like, you have four more holes, son. <laughs> I have arranged this golf round to facilitate this conversation. You have four more holes, but even then, I'm like, God, I can't. Do it. So finally, something happened that had never happened in decades of rounds of golf with my family. We're halfway through the, the, the back nine, and a storm rolls in. A storm rolls in, like clouds and thunder and lightning, and the speakers on the golf course, they got speakers everywhere, and the sirens blare, and the instructions come out, and the instructions said, there's a storm coming through, don't move. Don't get out of your cart. Don't come back. Just stay exactly where you are until further instructions. And so my cousins had gone on. They were far away. So it's just my brother and I sitting in this golf cart in the middle of the golf course. I'm like, fine. <laughs> and I turned to him like, so you and I haven't been getting along very well, have we? <laughs> and he's like, he's not trying to. No, we haven't. 
So we're there for 15 minutes. That's how long the warning lasts. We're there for 15 minutes. And we worked it out. That's how much God cares. Really, that's how much God cares among, about unity among his brothers and sisters. He will send in storm fronts. He is a relational God. He will send in storm fronts. God, who is three in one, he is at peace within himself, and he cares about this. He will send in storm clouds. He might stop your golf cart in its tracks so that we can pursue reconciliation. He wants to help. He wants to help. He wants to help us live at peace and reconciliation with each other so that we can know the joy of living in relationship, peaceful relationship with one another. I mean, he knows that joy, right? He knows that, and he wants us to experience it. But it just takes the work. The command not to murder people is not about not killing people. It's about pursuing peace with one another, about taking the radical steps to be reconciled. It's about motivating us, asking us the question, how far are you willing to go? Are you willing to drive your lawnmower across state lines? Are you willing to tie up your bull and go pursue it before you, like, pretend to be a worshiper? How far are you willing to go? That's Jesus' lesson for us this morning. Reprioritize reconciliation to a radical degree. Do it quickly. You don't have forever. Storms are coming in.